Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Rock and Roll Tour, the podcast, subtitled From Rockstar to Uber Driver and Back. As this episode goes live, the Go Now band has an interesting month coming up. For those that don't know, Go Now is the band I put together in 2016 to perform, celebrate and pay tribute to the music of the Moody Blues. And in this month of September, we're performing with the Philadelphia Pops Orchestra at the Kimmel Centre on Friday the 16th, Saturday the 17th and Sunday the 18th of September. We then fly home for more dates in the UK. These dates in Philadelphia are the crowning jewel of six years' work. When we kicked off as a pretty much unknown group back in 2016, our audience consisted of about two nuns and a ferret. But as those two nuns and a ferret gave us a standing ovation, I knew we were onto something. The music of the Moody Blues is, of course, dear to my heart because, of course, I was in the Moody Blues for 25 years. And that's when I fell in love. I fell in love with touring, I fell in love with the guys in the band, I fell in love with the crew, I fell in love with the fans, I fell in love with America, where we mostly toured. But, most importantly, I fell in love with the music. It came to represent a good life. During my time with the Moody Blues, my wife and I had two children, and these songs were the backdrop to that period. We also bought our first house, and the music paid for it. Well, paid for the deposit anyway. I toured the world, I did exciting things, explored exciting and different cities, some of which I would have never even heard of had it not been for touring. All the while playing this catalogue of great songs on a nightly basis. So this music means the world to me. Now, the Moody Blues, as a touring entity, are no longer playing, of course, but the music is still there. Like all great music from the earliest composers right up to the present day, waiting for new musicians to breathe life into it. And that is exactly what we're going to be doing in Philadelphia. Along with the Philadelphia Pops Orchestra and the guys in the Go Now Band, we will be performing all the best-loved Moody Blues songs with all the passion I used to play it with when I was touring with the actual Moody Blues. I can't tell you how much this means. Actually, that's not true. I think I just have. So, September is going to be a musical month, whereas August was a month of Uber driving. The pendulum really does swing far in life. I've been Uber driving since the lockdown started at the beginning of the pandemic, not just to bring some money in, but also to be able to get out of the house to meet people. And as much as I like practicing and reading and writing and all the other things we do in isolation, it's just nice to be out in the world meeting people. And when you chip away at something for a long time, it's sometimes difficult to gauge just how far you've come. Or in the case of Uber, how many people you've met. Well, that was all cleared up the other day with an email from Uber telling me, congratulations, Gordon, you've just passed the 2,500 trips marker. What? I couldn't fathom it. 2,500 Uber trips, one at a time. Then it struck me. 2,500 people is the exact size of the Kimmel Centre Go Now will be playing in this month. So when I walk out on stage at the Kimmel Centre in front of the Philly Pops and sit at my drum kit, I'll be looking at the exact amount of trips I've done as an Uber driver. The journey from my very first Uber job to today 
is the same sort of distance from those two nuns and a ferret to the Philly Pops. It's how I managed 25 years with the Moody Blues, just one year at a time, one tour at a time, one day at a time. As this podcast is subtitled From Rockstar to Uber Driver and Back, I was thinking of an event on the road that quite dramatically demonstrates the difference between the two. Now, one of the benefits of touring with a band like the Moody Blues is that you get to travel the same way they do. And if they lease a private jet, as a backing musician, you get to catch a ride on it. Touring really is a case of trains, planes and automobiles and Ubers these days. But travelling on a private plane has to be the epitome of luxury travel. The Moody's used quite a few different planes over the years. The first one I ever went on was apparently one of Elvis's last planes. It was a prop jet, meaning the propellers were powered by jet engines. We called this one HMS Turbulence because it couldn't get high enough off the ground to avoid it. But the plane that was most used was a G5 executive jet, which appeared on quite a few tours over the years. It's one of the planes with the engines at the back of the plane, just beneath the tail wing. They are, of course, beautiful, with plush carpets and comfortable cream leather captain's chairs in the main cabin. It makes you feel like James T. Kirk on holiday. On these planes, there is a seat called the jump seat, which the air hostess sits in for takeoffs and landings. This is the best seat in the house because you're front row for both of those events. We used to take it in turns to offer the air hostess a seat in the main cabin so each of us could get an opportunity to see the takeoff and landing at close quarters. And one day, when we were travelling to some rather remote Midwestern town for a show, it was my turn to sit up front. And, of course, whenever I was offered the jump seat, I would always, well, I would jump at it. Although this was one flight that had me cursing the day I ever decided to pick up a pair of drumsticks. I can't remember which town or city we were travelling to, but some of the events of this flight are graffitied across my frontal lobe for reasons that will become clear when I tell you what happened. But first, let me properly explain the positioning of this jump seat. It's an important factor to the story. The seat is directly behind the pilots and raised a little. There's no door between the main cabin and the cockpit, just a small curtain. And the jump seat is a chair that pulls out of the wardrobe like a, like a drinks tray behind the pilots. And it folds out rather like a, a small beach chair that you carry into the beach. And it folds away just as easily. The seatbelt is stored above your head and drops down from a small compartment when you open the flap that's holding, holding the seatbelt in. And the seatbelt is more like two large pieces of dental floss that are attached to the beach chair. Never mind, the position of it is perfect to see everything. Now, imagine the pilots are toddlers. Stay with me, stay with me for this one. Let's say they're small twins in matching pilots' outfits and you're pushing them along the street in one of those double-width baby strollers. That's roughly the position you're sitting in. You're so close that if you leant forward, you could kiss the twins on the back of their head. You're also holding onto the bars at the back of the pilot's seat. Now, on the day in question, there were some serious storms knocking around in the Midwest and we were travelling west with the job of landing at a private airstrip where there would be vehicles waiting to drive us straight to the show. Now, in the centre 
of the plane's dashboard, there's a weather sonar. It looks like a large clock. There's a digital arm that sweeps backwards and forwards, much like one of those old-fashioned metronomes marking a tempo. On each sweep of the metronome, a new digital map of the surrounding weather is drawn on the clock face. By turning a knob, you can scroll in and out and see the clouds in the surrounding mile or so, or you can scroll right out and see any approaching storms from miles away. This constantly updated weather map is mostly green, and where there are thick clouds, you see sort of patches of dark green, and where there's a storm, it turns a disturbing dark red. We had to wait on the runway for some time before we took off because of the weather, but after about half an hour or so, one of the toddlers in the stroller spotted an opening, and we went for it. We were all pretty used to bumpy rides. You sort of get used to rough terrain, but this was choppy, to say the least. Every now and then, it felt like a passing giant would pick the plane up off the ground a few inches and drop it down again just for the fun of it. Nevertheless, I was chatting away to the kids in their stroller, but firmly hanging on to the back of their chairs just to keep them safe. After a while, the main pilot, who we got to know really well and was brilliant, thank God, said he had to stop chatting as they were looking for the landing strip. He said we needed to land before that dark red blotch on the left of the screen got any closer. So they turned to the much more important job of flying the plane. Now, private landing strips don't have air traffic control. There's no ground control to Major Tom. You plot the mileage, you keep an eye on the map, all the while looking for visual reference points on the ground to make sure you know where you are. And when you visually spot the landing strip, you land the plane. The blotch of red was fast encroaching the whole clock and visibility was getting worse by the second. What I do remember is that we were travelling west, but we had to land coming in from the east. So the plan was to spot the landing strip, do what's called a teardrop landing, in that you scoot out to the right side or the starboard side, you sweep back on yourself and you land in the opposite direction. We couldn't see the ground, but we were near to the landing strip, so they pulled out to starboard and began to circle around at a very steep bank, looking out the port window, the left window, for the landing strip. At this point, the red mist had completely descended over the lovely green clock in the middle of the dashboard. We were now in the middle of the storm, with rain pelting against the windscreen, like a steady stream of marbles falling from the sky. It felt like, I would imagine, a runaway roller coaster feels with a missing wheel. One particular image still lives with me, and that was the relationship between the pilot doing the steering and his steering wheel. It's attached to the top of a pole that goes into the floor of the plane, and of course, you pull it towards you to go up and you push it forward to go down, and obviously left and right like a car. Now, imagine we're back pushing our toddlers in the double stroller along the street, and one of the kids is holding a toy steering wheel. Imagine a Rottweiler runs up and grabs the toy wheel and begins shaking it with all his might, but our child won't let go of the wheel. The violent yanking between the dog and the toddler was exactly like the pilot wrestling with his joystick. As we banked round the port side at what felt like a 45 degree angle looking for terra firma, a quick break in the clouds appeared and out of nowhere, directly beneath us, was a landing strip. The tip of the port wing was about as far off the ground as the roof of my house, which for a plane is low. 
With a final yank of the wheel out the Rottweiler's mouth, the pilot pulled the plane round on a sixpence, or, or a dime as we're in the US, and pushed the plane down. We came in at an angle not quite straight with the runway and at a speed I could not comprehend. My buttocks were gripping the crotch of my underpants and my toes were gripping the socks inside my trainers. But we were heading towards tarmac and we were not upside down. This is when I became aware of a noise. It was a sort of low growling like a... It was me. I was making that noise. I turned round to look behind me and I saw a herd of horses' eyes looking right back at me from the main cabin. Then the plane hit the tarmac like a brick. A bouncing brick as we went back up again in the air for a few short seconds and then bang down for a second time. This is when the reverse thrusters were engaged, basically the plane's brakes, and we started an emergency stop. The sort of stop you'd go for if you're in your car and you suddenly saw a stationary bus in front of you when you're travelling at 70 miles an hour and you think you're going to hit it. The nose of the plane went down. I was up out of my beach chair like a jockey in the final furlong of the Grand National. The dental floss got itself caught around my loins and did actually stop me going through the windscreen. The subsequent pain in my testicles probably did me a favour, as I think the automatic sort of recoil stopped me from shitting myself. Behind me, the screams sounded as if someone was trying to insert large suppositories into every member of a church choir. I was pushing on the back of the twin stroller like I was doing a handstand, and as I looked down, the entire contents of the plane entered the cockpit like a strike in a bowling alley. Cups, saucers, lipsticks, Coca-Cola cans, headphones, a whole car boot sale of merchandise rushed to the front of the plane and the skidding seemed to last forever. Just as quickly, the plane stopped and there was silence. Then a slight bump as the front wheels dropped off the concrete of the landing strip onto the grass at the end of the runway. The only thing was, it was the wrong runway. Yep. In the confusion of the storm above, with zero visibility and no contact with anyone on the ground, we'd set down on a landing strip three miles too soon. Now, let's just stop for a minute and contemplate what landing at the wrong, uninhabited runway could mean. In fact, let's not think about that. They say if you can walk away from a landing, it's a good landing. This landing tested that theory to the extreme. One other thing, we were already late for the show and of course the vehicles waiting for us were three miles away up the road at the other landing strip. We did the show that night of course and the adrenaline was still running through everyone's veins when we went back to the airport the same night to fly to the next town. Only this time we were driven to the right airport. It turns out that the runway we landed on was too short for a G5. So the pilots had to do a very fast takeoff with no one on board to keep the weight down and land it back at the right airport so we could all board it there. I decided to sit in my captain's chair in the main cabin for the second flight of the day and I was holding probably the largest gin and tonic known to man. But by this point, the storms had passed and the second flight was the smoothest I'd ever had, probably just by comparison. The incident was considered to be worthy of an investigation, and far from the pilots being to blame, we were all just grateful to have such experienced people at the controls to deal with such an incident. If you think that journey sounds adventurous, then I have to very quickly mention 
an Uber journey I did last week from North London to South London. The pickup point was a North London college, and I was met by a well-dressed, middle-aged woman and a six-foot-something 20-year-old. The woman who'd made the Uber booking asked me to take, uh, I'll call him John, to an address in South London, a journey of about 50 minutes. His English isn't perfect. He's only just arrived in the UK and enrolled at the college, she said. No problem, I said. We set off, and he seemed intently interested in everything. He was closely examining the stitching in the car and generally looking out the window like a tourist. The conversation started off slowly, but we managed to knock the ball back and forth over the net and eventually started a conversation. He'd never been to London. He was studying engineering in the country he'd left, but now here was trying to learn the language as quickly as possible. I managed to get a laugh out of him by pointing to a passing drunk in the street and saying he's going to see lots of those in London. A laugh appeared across a face that didn't look like it had seen many laughs. As we drove through the city, he was mesmerised. We entered London on the south side of Hyde Park and I took him the scenic route. We drove past Buckingham Palace, not too much of a detour, which brought us out to Trafalgar Square. His face was a picture. It was like he was from a different time, not just a different country. We drove down past Downing Street and I pointed out that's where our Prime Minister lives. We then passed the House of Commons and Westminster where protesters gather and hold banners to shout their grievances. He asked me if we were allowed to criticise our government, to which I said, oh yes, and everyone does. At this, he went very quiet and stared out the window for a while. We continued on and drove past the new development at the Battersea Power Station, where Apple are building their new London campus and where what looks to be a small brand new city is popping up. It's also where the new US Embassy is in Embassy Square. I pointed to the embassies and said, that's where you take your passport to get your visas. Turns out he doesn't have a passport. How did you get into the country? I asked. He then made a gesture with his arm that suggested waves. Turns out he came to the UK on an inflatable boat across the channel seeking asylum. When I asked about his family, he said he had to leave them behind. He and his brother had protested against the government and his brother was hanged from a crane. I'm not going to mention which country it is. It's not that type of podcast. Needless to say, there's more than one country that will still do this. There was something about his demeanour, his expression and his delivery that made him utterly believable. This wasn't some opportunist. This was a young man fleeing his country to save his life. I thought back to me at the same age, making the much safer journey from my hometown in a car in the north to London, which ultimately led to me touring the US on a private plane. And I certainly didn't have to do it in an inflatable boat. I wished him luck at the end of the journey and shook his hand welcomingly. Although I will undoubtedly never see him again, his story will stay with me forever. And if ever I needed something to make me feel gratitude for living in the West and the opportunities I've been afforded, including having a private plane story, it was this short 50-minute journey with a stranger. We certainly live in interesting times. And with that, I have to leave you. Until next time, good night. What a day it's been, dear diary It's been just like a dream Woke up too late, wasn't where I